0: Welcome to the Pursuit of Learning Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Murphy. My goal is for each of us to grow personally, professionally, and financially, one conversation at a time. To do that, we will have conversations with subject matter experts across a variety of modalities. My job as your host will be to dig out those golden nuggets of wisdom that will facilitate our growth. Join me on this pursuit. Today, I talked to Brian Sucheta about one of my favorite topics, mental health. Brian and I work our way through his first book, Get Out of Your Head, a toolkit for living with and overcoming anxiety. Through COVID, the isolation has amplified our mental health challenges, and I appreciate any tools that help us reduce our stressors. Come along with Brian and I and learn some tools to help you reduce the anxiety you may be feeling in your life. Brian, welcome to the Pursuit of Learning podcast. I would like to start off by asking you what presently interests you and has you super motivated in life? And what are some things you really want to make sure come out today in our conversation for the listeners?
1: Yeah. So a couple things there, right? Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Clint. And it's uh, it's great to meet you. I would say things that get me motivated in life, right? Like I've kind of fallen into this groove now where uh, being an author and working on my second book, the things that get me excited are kind of just Having different ideas in my head, trying to distill those down and figure out what a good message is, or how to put a message in the right context uh, for my readers, my listeners, that sort of thing, and then kind of segueing into the second question, right? I'm or related to that is all the, all the information that I put out there, right? I talk about some personal experiences with anxiety, depression, that sort of thing. I talk about different ideas that I have, different learnings I come across, and you know, maybe it's mythology, maybe it's different books or a talk that I listened to or something like that. But the end goal, like why I got into this in the first place is really, you know, if, if I go all the way back, it's like thinking of myself as like a struggling teenager with anxiety, right? And thinking of other folks around the world, they could be teenagers themselves, they could be older, it doesn't really matter. But just seeing myself in those people, right? People struggling in certain situations with mental health, knowing how difficult that is, and just wanting to be able to give some insights to folks and Some hope and some help too.
0: And so, Brian, today we'll be talking about Get Out of Your Head, a toolkit for living with and overcoming anxiety. Did you want to share with the listeners what book two that you're working on is about so they can have an idea of what's coming next?
1: Yeah, definitely. So, I am working on a second book right now. It's pretty far along, just trying to get that final, I don't know what you would call it, final polish on the manuscript where I feel really good about it. But so, if we think about, you know, anxiety and depression are two diseases that are they're, they kind of have a commonality with one another, right? Like some people call them comorbid. You know, in in this second book, which I'll I'll get to in a second, uh, there's different research that I touch upon. Some of it showing how like anxious environments, whether it's where we live or work or something like that, like a an environment that constantly produces anxiety within us can sometimes uh, lead us to depression, and so. The interrelatedness of the two two diseases is kind of what has me, uh, you know, centering my brand around uh, both of them and mental health in general as well, right? But so it it makes a nice segue to be able to say like, hey, you know, I wrote the first book on anxiety, and I wrote the second book uh, on depression, and so the second book is basically it's just going to be volume two. So it's going to be Get Out of Your Head Volume Two. I you know, uh, there's some details that I have, some that I don't, I don't like, uh, keeping it a little bit close to the best, but in, in general, yes. Volume two, uh, it will be about depression and, you know, it's, I'm definitely, I'm happy with it. I'm proud of it. The thing that, you know, I go back to mostly, right. Is just wanting to be able to take my message and help people with it. Right. And it's, it can be difficult, right? Like depression is such a sensitive subject And we all deal with it in different ways. And so I'm just trying to make sure that I find that balance. But, you know, again, just going back to the idea of like wanting to help folks who are struggling, seeing myself and others, uh, that, that continues to be the reason for, you know, pushing the brand forward, writing blog posts, jumping on podcasts, writing the second book, all that sort of stuff. So
0: absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. And for our listeners, you've probably heard me say in the past, I've been dealing with, depression for the last 17 years. So that's something that is near and dear to my heart. Anything that can be done to help people with that. And something, as Brian said, that comes along with that is the occasional bout of anxiety. And your book, Get Out of Your Head, it really resonates because one thing I've heard in the past that I pick up a lot, Brian, with depression and anxiety is is when we're in our head. Depression tends to be in our head focused a lot on the past. And anxiety is in our head focused a lot on the future. And a lot of what I read in Volume 1 is dealing with thinking about the future and how to get away from that. So I look forward to diving into that with you uh, today. And what we're going to do, so we mentioned we're going to talk about getting out of your head as a toolkit for living with and overcoming anxiety. Can you tell our listeners what started you on this journey to dive into anxiety?
1: Yep, definitely. So this one will probably be a little bit longer of an answer. Feel free to reel me back in if I go off a little bit too far. But sticking with the theme of, right, like seeing myself and others in the sense of like seeing The things that I've struggled with in other people and wanting to help folks with that. If I jump all the way back to the beginning of the story, right? It's like, obviously, like everybody deals with anxiety to some degree, or a lot of people do to some degree, right? And I think I dealt with some of it during middle school and things like that, but it really began to rear its ugly head like at the end of high school and then also kind of like culminated or at the very least, like really became apparent to me early on in college. And so one of the stories that I tell that's in uh the first book it's actually uh the the very first chapter uh, or in the very first chapter is so i'm in college it's probably it's got to be like the the first or second week of college right and so i think unfortunately you get you may get different messages about how certain situations are going to go in your life or quote unquote supposed to be in your life right and so you're a kid in high school and you watch all these different movies about college and animal house and that sort of thing and so you know, I, I'm i not 100% sure that I thought it was really going to be like that, right? But you're like, going off to college, I get this freedom, we're going to, you know, we're going to party, we're going to meet a bunch of women, it's going to be amazing, like, you know, just going to be a great time. Like, obviously, you, you understand that there may be some challenges along the way. But like, you think of the movies, and you're like, okay, I'm signing up for that. That sounds great, right? So fast forward to, again, first, second week of college, I had met this uh, girl that I was interested in. We had hung out a couple times, nothing like crazy, but you know, 18 years old, like kind of, you know, getting that feeling, like, oh wow, I like this girl, whatever. And so she texted me, I don't know, during during that first or second weekend or whatever it was, and I could kind of tell that she had been drinking. Right, you can just tell by the text messages, like, uh, you know, something is a little off here or whatever. But she was like, "I'm coming over," and I had not been drinking, so I was sober, and and I knew that, like. I dealt with what I had called at the time, like nervousness, right? I was like, oh, like, you know, if I get my, uh, find myself in like an intimate moment or whatever, like, I'm going to be nervous. I don't, I don't know how I'm supposed to act in certain situations. I don't know what I'm necessarily supposed to do, right? And so it's kind of this, uh, you can, you can almost hear it right now, right? Me jumping into my head saying like, okay, well, if she comes over, then I'm, am I supposed to say this? Am I supposed to do that? Whatever it is, right? And so uh, fast forward um, to the situation, she, she comes over and I am so nervous because like, I'm like, she's, you know, on the text messages, she's been like, uh, aggressive. And like, uh, I don't know, again, I don't know how I'm supposed to handle myself, how I'm supposed to handle the situation. She comes over is like, you know, a little like just a little too much, right. And sits down next to me. And I am like, so nervous. I'm just like, I don't know what to do with myself. I like this girl, yada, yada, yada. And so she sits down, down next to me. And like, my heart is like racing out of my chest. And I'm like, Oh, my God, like, I, again, not sure what I should do. And almost right away, as soon as she sits down next to me, again, being (laughs) not sober, she senses it and she just flips out on me and she starts using all these curse words. What is wrong with you? Like screaming at me, whatever. And, you know, for an 18 year old kid, who's like, I know I deal with nervousness and all this sort of stuff, but like, I did not expect this to happen right now. I am like, my, my world is like blown apart. Right. I'm like, I have, I didn't know how I was supposed to handle this situ- situation in the first place, and now I have this girl who is swearing at me, and I liked her, right? And now she's running away down the hall, and I'm having a panic attack, but I'm also trying to potentially salvage this situation. But you know how much <laughs> how much is there is salvage when when a girl is running out of your room screaming and calling you all sorts of obscenities, right? So if I move to the next morning, right, that was really uh, that next moment, uh, morning was really the moment where it all came to light for me, or, or at the very least, like it. Uh, it was one of the, I don't know, it was just one of those moments that you remember distinctly, right? So I'm sitting in front of my computer and I'm like, you know, I didn't even drink last night and I feel horrendous. Like that was so awful. Uh, This girl that I thought that maybe like I had a future with or whatever, right? Like maybe we could see each other, date each other, whatever. Like as far as I know, she wants nothing to do with me. She thinks like I'm a total weirdo. Uh, At the same time, I'm like, I just had... and again, I, I was eighteen. I don't even I didn't even have the terminology, right? I didn't I wasn't able to say like I deal with anxiety and that was a panic attack and that sort of stuff, right? I'm on Google the next morning trying to figure out what the experience was that I just had. So I'm buying these eBooks and I'm like, okay, like nervousness, googling that stuff. And obviously, in 2000, 2008, that's a different ecosystem. Uh, the internet is a different ecosystem. Amazon's a different ecosystem than it is today, right? So there wasn't as much information out there as I probably wanted to find. But I found what I found, right? And it was just one of those moments where it was like, again, that was very, very painful. Uh, I don't want to go through that again. I don't even necessarily know what it is, but I'm kind of in this moment vowing to myself to say, I'm going to figure out what that was. I'm going to figure out ways to deal with it. Um, and then again, like continually going back to the idea of like wanting to help people going through the same situations, right? So like I've had some of those moments. That was, that was the most... Uh, I don't know what the right word is, poignant or something like that, right? That was the most difficult of the situations that I've experienced in my life, or at least like socially, right? And along the way over the years, so that was 2008, that was 13 years ago, right? I've kind of had different experiences and each one kind of comes back to you, at least for me, right? And says like, okay, that was challenging, but either I got through it or I figured it out, or I came up with some new strategy, or or maybe it, <laughs> maybe it was horrible, right? But in the end, um, I always wanted to come back and say, like, okay, what can I make of this? Uh, what insight can I draw? What can I? What lesson can I take away from it that maybe I could apply uh, to the next situation? And I don't know. That's just kind of the person that I am. And uh, again, uh, uh, along the course of those thirteen years or whatever it may be, obviously I, my my first book has been out for about three years now. But um, just kind of going through those experiences and saying to myself, like, hey. I've learned some things and I and th- those things were difficult for me to find out. Maybe I can help save people some of that pain in discovery, right? On their own. Maybe they could read some of my content, read a book, read a blog, whatever it is, um, and come away with some ideas that they can put into practice well before they need to have an experience like I did with that girl. And, you know, I, it's uh, kind of difficult, difficult to talk about because it's like, I think with mental health, it's like really hard when you start comparing like different people's situations. And so it's like, you know, if I look back on it, I now kind of laugh, right? It was like, I was 18. It was this girl that I was interested in, but like, was it the end of the world? It wasn't, but it was still difficult for me to go through, right? And I think a lot of us have things like that that are special or important to us. And so it's it's tough to compare. Um, but I guess I will just say that like we kind of know our own evaluations of pain um, and whatever that is to someone. Uh, I'm not trying to say that mine was more painful than theirs or anything like that, but uh, whatever that pain is to someone, I want to try to uh, help provide them some strategies that maybe could alleviate that or save them, uh, you know, keep them from having to experience such a thing.
0: Thank you for sharing your personal story. Appreciate it. It's always great to hear when something's coming from a place of a of a lived experience. Um, And a vulnerability, it really opens up the conversation and we'll touch on a lot of what you shared in there. As we first start diving into your writing, something that jumped out at me that you said was that anxiety is just an extension of our innate survival mechanisms. Can you share what you meant by that? Yeah,
1: sure. So there's a lot of different ways that I could take this, uh, this answer, right. But if you think about a lot of people are familiar with the idea of like the fight or flight mechanism within us, right. So it's like evolutionarily speaking, right. And who knows, like it, the, the theories tend to suggest that this is how things went, but maybe we don't know for sure, but let's just say, you know, zoom backwards, uh, 10,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago, whatever it is, right. The way that a natural selection works, right. Is like, you put people or animals or beings or whatever in a specific environment. And the ones that are best adapted to that environment tend to over time, be the ones that survive, right? So it's like, I don't know, if you're on a planet that's full of water, and you don't have gills, uh, probably over time, like, you're not going to survive, right? The ones that have gills are going to survive. And so the thought is that over time, like, uh, because the world used to be a lot less safe than it is now like on a on a day-to-day basis right so like our ancestors used to uh come across lions and and tigers and and, and things of that nature i'm not going <laughs> to lions and tigers and bears oh my uh, i had to say it but so you know there there used to be a lot of uh danger uh, throughout the entire world right it could have been Uh, it could have been animals. It could have been opposing clans. You know, there wasn't always the United States, that sort of thing or whatever. And so the theory is that just like people on a planet full of like full of water, uh, who have gills are likely to survive over the, over the long term, uh, folks who come into dangerous situations a lot and are able to react to those situations very quickly are going to survive more than the folks that don't. And so the thought is that evolutionarily speaking, like, uh, our dangerous environment kind of bred out the folks that weren't able to, you know, react quickly to a lion being in front of them and made it so that folks that could run away from those dangerous situations quickly, they, uh, you know, they, they were able to live longer and pass their genes off, uh, you know, in the gene pool. And so I guess when we say, you know, anxiety is an offshoot of, of this survival mechanism, right? So the survival mechanism is the idea that when we face danger, we uh, our bodies, like you know, react quickly, our hearts start pumping, blood rushes to our extremities, that sort of thing. And so we want to run away as quickly as we can. Uh, and so the thought now is that the world is a lot safer than it used to be, right? We're not walking outside of our doors and seeing lions out there. But our brains and our bodies are still conditioned because evolution happens very, you know, it happens very slowly and over the course of a very long time. And so you know, some folks would say that, If you look at the structure of the brain, like it hasn't evolved in somewhere between like 30,000 and 100,000 years. And so if you think about like you have the same hardware and yet the environment is completely different. If you, if you're like, okay, we, we have, we've bred these folks that are very reactive to danger, right? And then we put them in a situation that or a world that is not quite as dangerous. It's still going to see danger, uh, in different things in certain places, even when it might not exist, right? And so uh, one of the things that I actually talk about in the second book, just to, as I was trying uh, to compare like anxiety and depression is like everything that I just talked about, right? Explains how we can go into a job interview and feel as though like we might die in it, even though, you know, if we really were to step back and say to ourselves, like, you know, is this the end of the world if it doesn't go well? You know, reasonably, we would say, no, it's, it's not the end of the world, right? But our brains are looking, they're hyper vigilant, right? They're, they, again, we were sort of bred over the course of a very long uh, period of time to say, like, okay, we are the, the, how we got here, how we survived is we were vigilant. And so we are, our brains are now vigilant, are, are now still vigilant, even if that danger doesn't exist at every place, every turn in our environment. And so again, it's just kind of like we are bred to see fear and to see danger in certain places when maybe it exists, maybe it doesn't, or maybe we've kind of adapted what that danger is, right? Maybe it's relative in the sense that, you know, our, our, our spectrum of like, this is dangerous and this is not dangerous becomes like our lived experiences. So maybe the most dangerous thing we face is driving uh, on a highway or something like that, right? Getting on a plane. And so uh, that's all we know. And so that's what we've trained ourselves to use our, our hardware for, right? If that, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it does. It's almost, it makes me, you know, picture a bit of a hardwired radar system that's always scanning our environment, looking for danger. And one of the things I've heard over time is that physiologically, we have a hard time actually recognizing the difference between a true physical threat and a thought physical threat. So sometimes if we're thinking something, the reaction we have can be as if that was real. And we can't tell the difference between a thought and a real physical sensation. Does that play into this, Brian? Oh,
1: for sure. I mean, uh, you know, I think one of the things about anxiety, right? We were talking uh, at the beginning of the podcast, you were saying like, we kind of see anxiety as like this um, future looking thing and depression sometimes is this backward looking thing, right? And so it's like, if you think about what we get fearful of, what we get anxious of, so kind of going back to the evolution thing, right? So if we look at the hard definitions of fear and anxiety, and you know, I, I would like to think it's a little more nuanced than this, or I use both terms interchangeably, like I'm not very dogmatic about it or whatever it is, but like by the book, technically fear is like, I am in front of a bear, I am very scared because that thing is here right now. Anxiety is I am worrying that I may face a bear a bear in the future, and because I may face a bear in the future, I am now scared right now. And so it's like fear is present day danger, worry, the thoughts associated with it, the physiological response associated with it. Anxiety is the the future looking one, and so you know when you said the, the original question was something around like you know the the thoughts right versus necessary like a real threat versus a thought. A real threat obviously can most most certainly trigger us because that's what the system, the, the fight or flight system was designed for. But in terms of like, what is anxiety? It's very much that just like thinking about things and not necessarily having there be a true physical threat in front of us right now. Like that is so much of the experience.
0: Thank you for that. For sure. The So one of the things that important in You covered it a bit there, so you may not need to expand on it too much. But the, to be able to fight anxiety, we first have to know what it is. And can you share with us what it, what it is that you believe in your definition? We've talked a bit about fear, the synergy between fight or flight, and you also mention in the book, the concept of looping thoughts. Can you expand on that?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I think there's just so much uh, like in the mental health realm, there is so much of a theme around cyclical thinking, cyclical experiences. And so uh, when I refer to looping thinking in the book, it's basically like the idea that so number one, right, it's that we... Uh, something triggers us, like uh we think about the fact that we have uh, an exam coming up next week, and we're worried about it because it's an important exam to us, right? And so that becomes our trigger. And then we get inside of our heads, we start to think about like, maybe... Uh, the trigger reacts. Uh, uh, excuse me, leads to a some sort of physiological reaction, and so that gets us going. Either way, there is some, you know, some combination of triggers, some trigger that gets us inside our heads and gets us to start thinking. Uh, in other words, worrying. Right, and so what often happens is when we start to worry, we create. Or we intensify some of the reactions that are going on in our bodies. You know, maybe our heart was racing before, but now it's racing faster. Uh, maybe we were feeling bad before. And now we're feeling a lot worse. And so looping thinking is basically like going, in, looking at a fear that we have and kind of thinking that we can solve it. And then re- like maybe we don't even realize it, but continuing to think. Like in the sense of like, okay, like how do I solve this problem? Like, can I avoid it? Like, I'm really afraid of it, that sort of thing, and never actually solving the problem because you can't really solve fear, right? It's just an emotion. You almost need to like purge it or or, or let it through you, right? And so the loopingness is uh, there's there's two parts of it. One is the the baseline version where you're just like, okay, I still don't feel good, but I think I can I think I can figure this out. So I'm going to keep going and keep going, not realizing that. The fact that you keep going is the fact that uh, the fear is perpetuated in your mind and in your body, right? And then the the second part of looping thinking is something that I talk about in the book called recursive anxiety. Is essentially you have you may have one thing that you get fearful of originally, right? That that triggers your looping thinking. So you say, uh, you know, just to use that uh, analogy or the example that I I gave a second ago was basically, you know, I have this important exam, I'm afraid of it, so let me. Get it? Like, let me think about this, like, okay, I got to picture myself in the situation, like in the exam room, like not being afraid or whatever. And then the next thing you know, it's like in this, a lot of this happens subconsciously, right? But you're, you know, you're going through the thoughts in your head and you're like, okay, uh, I'm, I'm at the desk and I'm not afraid and I'm not anxious. And then the next thing you know, you're like, oh, but I still don't feel good. So maybe I am anxious and you know the again the thoughts continue the loop continues and then where we get into the second level of looping thinking or maybe uh, again what i would call recursive anxiety is that we we move from the first event or the first trigger into something else and so we say like we we eventually in our loop we think to ourselves like i can't, i haven't yet figured this out and because i haven't figured this out like I'm a loser or I'm incompetent or whatever it is, right? And then that leads us to another set of worries and worse feelings and worse psych- uh, physiological reactions and things of that nature. It's very hard to stop that thought process without, like, uh, it's it's hard to solve that thought process or, or answer it or like stop it through thinking, right? Uh, I forget what the three bullet points are in the book specifically, but I basically say like, the only way out of that is to one, like methodically put it down, Two, get distracted uh, by something else that we're doing or like three, go to sleep or something like that, right? And so one of the most important and difficult things with anxiety is being able to be mindful enough to say to yourself like, oh. I'm aware that I have entered this pattern of looping thinking and I know that I can't get out of it with thought alone. I know that I need to get up, shake my body out, go for a run, go for a walk, listen to music, distract myself from this fear because it's, you know, some people will say like the only way, uh, what, what's the, um, I'm trying to think of the quote. It's like the only way through the, uh, the only way, uh, past the problem is through it or whatever. I would say that is very much not the case with anxiety, right? Sometimes, sometimes it's helpful to, you know, gradually expose yourself to your fears, uh, A lot of the times, it's, it's, uh, it's much more helpful to say, like, I'm going to put this down. I'm going to go do something else. And then, you know, maybe a couple minutes later, we realize the thoughts are gone, the fear is gone, and we feel maybe not like way better, but certainly better than we did when we were in our heads, right?
0: Yeah. Effectively, you can't outthink your thinking. And, and as you go, Brian, it sounds like you're almost, you know, when you think of depression, you slowly, are in a tornado sinking lower and lower. Whereas with anxiety, it seems like a hurricane and you're just spinning and spinning bigger and bigger and more and more. And once it gets going to a certain speed, unless you get out of the funnel, you can't escape it. Is that a metaphor that... Ties a little to what you're saying
1: yeah i'm I'm almost laughing over here, and not not like you know not not at you by any means. it's uh more there's a very core theme around book two uh it is the the theme of the book, and it is very much what you just talked about,
0: oh wow, perfect. I love it. It's not the uh it's not the first time we've had that on the pursuit of learning podcast where we start predicting book two based on a great book one, so uh love hearing that, thank you. So let's dive into the three tenets of anxiety with the first one being that all anxiety is rooted in uncertainty. Can you tell us more?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, if you think about we go back to that model of fear is like I'm in front of a bear and my body is trying like I'm afraid of what this means right now. Anxiety is I'm afraid of being in front of a bear. And so like I'm mentally preparing with what that's going to be like and I'm uh, just again worrying that it's going to happen right and so if you think about like both of those situations if we extract there's obviously a lot going on there right but one of the key themes or core themes ab- across both of them is not knowing what the outcome is so i'm in front of a bear right now is this thing going to eat me am i going to survive i'm not really sure the same thing kind of goes for the second situation right so when we when i say Uh, you know, going back to this first tenet of anxiety that anxiety is rooted in uncertainty is it's really hard. I mean, I don't, I don't want to say impossible because, you know, there's always things that I haven't thought about, things that I haven't dealt with or whatever, but it's very hard to be anxious about something that we know is going to occur in a certain fashion. Right. And in so many ways, like that is the core problem, right? So it's like, if we think about like certain things that we get afraid of, and then certain things that we do on a daily basis that we don't even think of, right? So like, I may, I don't know, I may go out on a date with a woman, not even think twice about it, right? A friend of mine may be afraid of that. Turn the tables. I may, I may be afraid every time that I step into a vehicle because I'm, you know... I don't, I'm not confident in my driving or I'm not confident in other people's driving. And I'm worried what's going to happen when I get on the roads. Whereas that same friend who may be afraid to go on a date with a woman uh, is not at all afraid of stepping into a vehicle. And if you, again, there's a lot of things happening in both in all of those situations. But if you step back you know, we, maybe you could say like, oh, well, well, this person is confident in this situation and this person is not confident or whatever, right? But if we continue to distill down and distill down, I think what we would probably see is that like you could say, okay, Brian is certain that a specific outcome is going to happen in this situation. Uh, his friend is certain that a specific outcome is going to happen in that situation, right? And so if we know or we're very confident that a specific outcome I'm kind of repeating myself, but uh, a, a specific outcome is is going to arise from a specific happening, then there's very little to be afraid of, right? Because when we're afraid, it's like the the nature of fear is the fact that I don't know what's going to happen. And so uh, kind of, you know, I, I, the reason why I've used that example is just that it's funny where like, there, are like s- sometimes anxious folks get anxious about everything, but sometimes uh, they only get anxious about specific things, right? And so if you, uh, if you kind of, boil it down, it's like, it's not, it might not necessarily be like a, uh, a personality trait or something like that, right? It might be a specific skill that they are unsure of, right? So you may say, uh, I am uncertain in my ability to go to a job interview, perform successfully and, and get a job offer, whatever it may be, right? So at the, uh, I'm giving a lot of different examples, but at the end of the day, it's basically like, if you knew how something was going to occur, uh, you wouldn't think about it, you wouldn't worry about it, you wouldn't fear it, right? You'd just be like, Hey, you know, when I get on that plane tomorrow, it's landing in California. Don't have to think twice about it. But if there's a bear in front of me, oh God, I have to think about that one. So,
0: and it almost sounds like there's a bit of subconscious conditioning as well, right? Why would I be anxious or fearful about driving and you about a bear? Even when you live in the city, what do you think it is that forms a bit of that conditioning into us?
1: It's a good question. I mean, you know, uh, just you think about an introductory psychology class, right? Like the concept of nature versus nurture. So, like if we think about the nature side, that kind of goes back to the, the part of the conversation where you know I was talking about evolutionary psychology and the fight or flight system and the fact that. Again, you know, if, if you're on a planet full of water, then the people with the gills tend to live longer. Um, so the the nature side of us, right, it's possible that we have been bred or born or whatever it is to uh, innately have this overreactive nervous system. So that 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 could be one part of the conditioning. Um, the other part is, you know, kind of the more traditional thought around like, quote unquote, conditioning, and that, uh, that would be nurture, right? So that could be the people that we hung out with at any age. That could be the lessons we learned in specific experiences. That could be the thoughts that we put through our minds, the the patterns that we developed as kids. And it's so hard really to, you know, make generalized statements around specific things uh, in the quote unquote uh, nurture category, right? Because everybody has different experiences. Everybody has different upbringings and backgrounds and things of that nature. So it's very hard for me to like, you know, Sit here and say like, okay, this specific thing happened to Brian. This specific thing ha- happened to Clint. But you know, I think one thing that's important, or one sorry, one thing that I that I could point at, right, is like, you know, I've I've used different examples. Some of them accurate. Some of them maybe less accurate. Whatever, right? But so I, I started the conversation talking about uh, you know that experience I had in college with that woman who ran away from me, right? And it's like I felt like if I'm using this analogy of nurture versus nature in my own life, I would say I've always you know, maybe, maybe there were things that my deep past that I don't remember that caused me to, you know, be nurtured in an anxious way. I'm not sure. But my get my my own guess, and this is the best I can do is basically that, I don't know, I was just born, have uh, the tendencies or whatever you may call it, like a a semi anxious person. And then having that hardware or whatever we want to call it, having some of those tendencies, uh, that then is a filter through which you see the world and you live in the world, right? So it's like, If I am afraid of, if if by nature, uh, I am afraid of, you know, interacting with uh, somebody that I like or something like that, then that's going to play out in some of my experiences. And then that's so my, basically my nature is going to, is going to nurture uh, or is going to affect my quote unquote nurture in the sense that like, because I'm anxious to begin with, I show up to these experiences where I'm anxious. Maybe I have outcomes from those situations that are based on me acting in a specific fashion, being scared or whatever it is. And so sometimes you get this cyclical, again, um, pattern of like, you know, who you are determines or influences some of the experience you, you have, which reinforce who you feel like you are, which reinforce or, or lead to some similar situation, so it's it's difficult to say for sure. But I don't know. Did that did that that answer the question, or did did I go on too much of a tangent?
0: Yeah, no, no, it definitely ties in, and and it even you know when you when you talk about nature, something we're learning more about now is this concept of intergenerational trauma. In the fact that we can pass trauma on to our offspring. So it may not even have been something that you experienced, but perhaps your parents experienced an issue and now you're anxious about something that you were born with that was their lived experience. And, you know, it's not something I I know super deeply it's something i definitely want to do more learning and reading on as uh, i move forward in life and uh, reminds me i was just doing a quick peek at i don't know if you'd ever heard about the crow study where someone wore a Richard Nixon mask and, and did something with crows and the crows communicated to each other that if they saw a person with that Richard Nixon mask that they should avoid them right And if I recall correctly, even generation or two later, uh, when the people put the mask on, they knew to avoid that person. So they had effectively passed down to the next generation to avoid uh, that person. And maybe, you know, uh, thinking of that person would give them anxiety and maybe somehow... In the bird way, they pass that down to their offspring. So, you know, to to think that we can't do the same would be—I uh, don't know why we couldn't.
1: Wow, that's a great example. Um, and I think kind of to close this topic out, right? I think the best that we—I think we can say—is that attributing anxiety to specific things can be difficult, right? Again, uh, based on people's experiences and whatnot, uh, and also uh, evolution. Or uh what you just mentioned, so like generational trauma, things of that nature, uh, especially not being clinical psychologists, like we just, you know, it's I don't even know if a clinical psychologist is always gonna get that one right, but it's a difficult subject, right? And so uh kind of tying into my brand, my theme, right? It's like um I, I basically just try to say, like, hey, here's where we are, let's make the best of it, let's see what we can apply. You know, obviously we can't uh <laughs> if a if a specific mask makes us feel a certain way it just is what it is and we gotta we gotta figure out what we can do about it so
0: and so on to the second tenet and we already it feels like we we tackled this one a little when we talked about the hurricane and the the fact that once we're in it we can't get out of it and so the second tenet is the more we dive into our anxiety the worse it becomes is there more that you want to add to that one?
1: Not too much. Uh, we've definitely covered that one a lot. And I think, uh, the looping thinking has a lot to do with that or, or it's very related, right? In the sense that we keep thinking and we keep feel like we keep feeling as though the more we think, the more we'll be able to solve it. But typically what happens is we create worse reactions, stronger, uh, mental and physiological reactions in our minds and bodies. That makes us feel even worse. The loop continues. So yeah, not too much to add there.
0: Which takes us to the third tenet before we start to dive into some of your methods that we can use to help us with this, which is something you said. You, you can't solve the anxiety. The only way past is to put it down and not to fight with it. And so the example you used was you know, try to distract yourself, go to sleep, get out of it, and uh, try to put something in its place is there more you want to share on that one Brian
1: not too much I think it's I think the 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 thing that I do want to stress though right is that when something triggers us there is this because of the way that our fight or flight system works like all of a sudden all of our attention is on that thing right like we we've got blinders on we can't see anything besides that thing and so what our minds and what our bodies tell us is React to that thing right now. Address that thing right now. And so going back to the, the evolutionary or the evolutionary psychology or the evolution side of things, you know, back 50,000 years ago, that was a good strategy. When there's a lion in front of you to have the blinders on and say, get the heck out of this situation as fast as you can. Great strategy. When you are two weeks out from an important conversation with your spouse or something like that. I'm just, Again, I'm just kind of making up certain things. Not so good of a strategy, right? Maybe a better thing is to say, look, I've prepared for that conversation a little bit. It still scares me pretty good, but that conversation is not right in front of me and thinking about it more is only going to make me feel worse. So you are not a lion and I'm going to go to the gym.
0: Boom. Love it. Okay, so let's dive in. And and one of the things that was really interesting that you talked about was this software concept of state management. Can you clue our listeners in by what you meant with that and how we're going to use that concept as it relates to anxiety as we go through the discussion today?
1: Yeah, for sure. And this is one this is one that I love, but I, I do sometimes struggle to explain it because it's a little technical. And so it's like, you know, I'm trying, it's usually you use an, an analogy to make something easier, right? Uh, given the fact that like software, like I'm a full-time software developer, that is sort of my thing. I'm just like, that's how I know how to make sense of things, right? But maybe it's possible that, uh, this analogy, I'm trying to teach two things at once. I'm trying to teach the analogy and the, the thing that it represents as well. Uh, so who knows? But I think it can make sense in the end if I if I talk about it right. So uh, I guess I'll 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 have you kind of keep me on a short leash or uh, ask questions if it doesn't make sense, right? And so using my experiences as a software developer, I, I like it's just like doing personal reflection and whatnot. Uh, over the course of my career, I started to see some of the connections between like the human mind and a computer system or the way that a computer works and the way that anxiety works or our thoughts work. And so just, uh, again, it's like just something that I came up with. It's not necessarily the best way to talk about it or the right way to talk about it or whatever, but just a way that I helped, uh, myself make sense of some of my experiences. And then I don't know, in, in the end kind of became a quote unquote trademark of mine or something like that. Right. And so if we talk about what state management is and what a state machine is. So basically in the computing world, when we wanna represent something, uh, let's say a real world physical object, when we wanna represent that in a computer program or in computer code, uh, a lot of the time what we're gonna do is we're gonna create a model uh, and that model is gonna have different states. So uh, an example that I give, I think the one that I give in the book is if we wanted to model a, a laptop computer, the laptop, just, like, just as humans can, Go into different states, right? Uh, the laptop could be in the turned on state. It could be on, in the out of battery state. It could be on in the powered off state in the sense that there could be battery, but maybe the person shut it off. And so in computer science, when we're trying to model real world, uh, real world objects, what we're going to do is we're going to list out what all those states are. And then we're going to build a map that basically says, this is how you get from state A to state B or state B to state A or whatever it is, right? And then this is how that object acts or performs in each of those different states. So uh, an example would be um, if if a computer is out of battery and you press the power button, nothing is going to happen because it's out of juice. And so it can't boot back up, right? But if the computer is on and you hit the power button, it's going to shut off. So it's going to act, depending on the state that it's in, it's going to act in different fashions. And then I guess another thing would be like you know The idea of moving to or from a specific state. So going along with that is if I have my laptop computer and I, uh, I have it powered on right now. So I'm in the, you know, the powered on state. If I hit the power button, it's not only going to shut the computer off, it's then going to move it to the turned off state or the powered down state or whatever it is. Right. So uh, does that high level idea or concept make sense?
0: Yeah. What, what, what it got me picturing and it, it were, you know, for someone who may not be into computers, but may have done a little bit of philosophy or may have used my, one of my favorite things in the world, Microsoft Excel. It sounded a lot like a, an if then, or an if else statement. So if this, then that else this, right. And, and so the, the ability to move between conditions, if you will.
1: That's exactly what it is. Yep, And it's funny just because, you know, if you look under the hood of some of these software programs that are uh, modeled by state machines, you will see a lot of if-else statements. So if that makes sense, then I'll uh, continue with the analogy. Yeah, keep going. I love it. Cool. So we have that idea, right? The idea that in the computing world, we can model things uh, based on the states that they can get into and out of and how they can uh, move from each state, that sort of thing. I basically use that as a concept to say that humans we also have different states that we can get into and out of, right? So there is an anxious state, there is a depressed state, uh, there is a joyous state, there is a sad state, all all different sorts of, I mean, a lot of them are emotions, right? But also like, uh, you could say, this person is asleep, they're in the sleeping state or whatever it is, right? So I try to use the general concept that I, I talked about in the software world and apply it to um, our own to say that th- just like the software uh, analogy, we go into and out of different states, and there are specific actions that we can take to get us from one state to another. And we also act in different fashions dependent upon the state in which we find ourselves. I guess an example would be if we are anxious, we feel a specific way, we think a certain way, right? We may think negatively, we may think in a looping fashion, uh, we may be less likely to engage in pursuits with our friends or something like that. And so basically like what we can do is and it's it's a little abstract. I'll definitely say that, but uh we can start to create our own maps. We can start to create what uh, what I call our the uh, the programming concept is a state machine, right? So we can say these are all the states that I get into and out of on a semi-regular basis. This is how I act in each of those states, and these are some of the things that I can do to get myself to or from a specific state. And once we have that map, the most important thing is awareness, right? So state management is basically taking that map, utilizing it to our advantage to say, hey, I now realize that I am in state A. I'm in a depressed state. And I had written down these, these specific things that I can do to feel a little bit better, to maybe move to a different state and different mindset or whatever it is. So when we zoom out and we say, I have the mindfulness right now or the awareness that I am in that state, then we can just look at our map and we can say, I know where I am, I know where I want to be, this is what I, these are some of the things that I can do uh, to move from one of those states to the other. And that idea of having the awareness and then taking the action, that is state management. So actively managing our state based on where we know we are and where we want to be.
0: So some important things I, I heard there, and I'll try to summarize and, and correct where I'm, I'm going off, is super important that we have the self-awareness to recognize what state we're in at any given point in time. And a second one is something that can really set us up with value is if we have a bit of that pattern recognition because then we may be able to say, hmm, this state, I label anxiety. And I notice that if this happens, I get anxious. If that happens, I don't. And so we're really trying to recognize the things that both bring us to a state of anxiety and to those things that bring us out of a state of anxiety. So those are some of the, as you said, those are going to be some of the ways that we um, use our state machine to take us to the state we want to be in.
1: Exactly. And I think it's funny because uh, you had said pattern recognition, right? Uh, Another computer term when talking about like, oh yeah, does does this specific set of characters look like a password or an email or something like that? Just kind of funny, Uh, but you, you got it totally right. And that awareness I think one of the difficult things, right, is we because all of this happens a lot on a subconscious level, right? It's like we look at our state machine, we define it, we we come up with this big plan, and then the next thing we know, we're sitting on the couch watching TV and we feel like crap, and we are so far removed from the awareness associated or required for it. Uh, you know, actually implementing the state machine. And that's the really difficult thing. But I think the best that you can do is, you know, you you continually practice it, you continually think about it. So that way, maybe the next time you're on the couch, you can say to yourself, hey, I I do think that maybe that state machine thing is important right now. Maybe I don't feel great. Maybe I should go and pick it back up and try to get myself to a different state. Again, it uh, because all this happens on a subconscious level, that's not always the easiest thing to do. But we just practice, we try, and hopefully we get a little bit better and we can apply it the next time. So it's, um, I don't know, we just do the best we can.
0: Yeah, I chuckled at that one and it brings up something I say to myself periodically, knowing what to do and doing it are two very different things. So <laughs> that brings us to step one, which is beautiful. And it's a, it's a tenet of, of a lot of mindfulness, meditation areas they're known to calm you down, and so the first one you have is breathe. Can you take us through that, Brian?
1: Yeah, sure. So just to frame this in the right uh, right way for listeners, so the the first half of the, of my book, Get Out of Your Head, uh, are sent is centered around this framework that I developed called the ten steps to getting out of your head. Um, they're not rocket science by any means, but they're the ten things that I like to do uh, when I find myself in, in an acutely anxious situation where I find myself fearful. Um, And I want to try to walk back some of that fear, right? Because I think a lot of the times the initial reaction, uh, as we were saying, right, is to say, okay, our bodies force us into this state where we're like, we got the blinders on, we're very afraid, feels like there's a lion in front of us and we need to attack it or we need to deal with it right now, right? Having these 10 steps, at least for me and some of my readers too, uh, we feel as though it helps us kind of get back uh, to groundedness and say, like, okay, here I am. I'm in an anxious situation. Let me remind myself that there's not a lion in front of me. And I have these tactics that I can leverage uh, to maybe walk some of this fear back. So uh, going into that first step, which is to breathe, uh, you talked about it and basically said, you know, how it's a, a tenet of, of so many different teachings and, uh, you know, kind of going back to the idea that these these 10 topics, not necessarily rocket science. And uh, most of them, like, you know, it's they've been around for a long time, right? Just kind of things that I figured worked, i uh, learned over the years worked for me. But uh, I guess when we talk about breathing, right? So we've talked about evolutionary psychology, we've talked about physiology, all those sorts of things, right? The fight or flight system. So when we get into an anxious state or when we are fearful, or when we have a panic attack, something like that. uh, So we have the autonomic nervous system, which is basically the part of our nervous system that we cannot control, right? And so some of that is the way that our heart beats. Some of that is the way that our, our blood courses through our veins or something like that, right? And so the autonomic, excuse me, the autonomic nervous system, kind of a mouthful there, uh, it has a few different parts. Uh, the two that we want to focus on are, uh, so the, the fight or flight system, which is the, uh, the sympathetic nervous system. Uh, and then there is kind of the, the, the opposite of that, which is there's two, two names for, it, well, three, but two kind of um, easier names to remember, which are the uh, feed and breed system uh, or, you know, feed and breed. Uh, I don't, we'll just call it the feed and breed system or the rest and digest system. Uh, and so we've got fight or flight, we've got rest and digest. And so, uh, again, to put kind of the, I didn't, I actually didn't say the second one's scientific name, but we, so, so we've got fight or flight, which is equal to, uh, sympathetic nervous system. And then we've got, uh, rest and digest or feed and breed, which is the parasympathetic nervous system. And so what happens is when we find ourselves in an anxious situation, the first one, the, the fight or flight system ramps into high gear. So this is the thing that's responsible for, you know, making us breathe a little bit more shallow, uh, having our hearts race uh, really loudly, strongly, quickly, whatever it is, uh, sending blood through to our extremities. The idea, again, going back to evolutionary psychology is basically our bodies have been trained, our brains have been trained to say... I've identified a very scary thing or a very uh, dangerous or harmful thing that's in front of me. I do not have the time to think about whether or not this is a threat, because if I stop to think, it could kill me, right? So I'm going to assume that that's a lion. I'm going to send out all the warning signals within the body and I'm out of here, right? So what happened, again, kind of going back, I keep mentioning this, but basically when we find ourselves in an anxious moment or when we're fearful That system is is ramped all the way up, and so what we need to do is we need to somehow activate the other system. I I kind of think of it as like a little bit of a triangle or a mountain or something like that, right? So it's like we're all the way when we're fearful, we're all the way up. I don't know the the sympathetic nervous system mountain, whatever we want to call it. We need to get ourselves back uh, to uh, to groundedness, to sea level, ground level, whatever it is. And so one of the ways that we activate the parasympathetic nervous system, the the feed and breed system is to breathe out uh, and pretty deeply. And so when folks say, uh, okay, you just need to breathe, uh, obviously that's very helpful to be able to like focus and say like, look, you're hyperventilating, you're not putting any air into your lungs, that sort of thing. That is helpful in and of itself. But I think the most helpful thing or even more helpful uh, is to remember that in order to activate that part of our nervous system that's gonna help us calm down, we need long and full exhales and so, you know, by nature, it's like if we're telling ourselves to breathe, then we are probably getting some of that exhale. But in order to really get it right, to make sure that we are totally bringing ourselves back toward calm, and maybe that could that could take a minute or something like that, right? It might not necessarily happen at the at the drop of a dime. But um, the idea behind this first step in saying like, "Hey, remember to breathe," right, is to do deep breaths in and then deep breaths out. And so the interesting thing is uh, when we breathe scientifically on the way in, we activate the sympathetic nervous system. So we're like, you know, if you you were looking at an EKG or something like that, your heart rate will go up a tiny bit when you breathe in, and then it'll slow down a tiny bit when you breathe out. And so even though breathing in and of itself is important, the most important thing is to do that full breath in and then the full breath out. So we, on the way out, we get uh, that, that feed and breed or the rest and digest Um, uh, system activation. And then we can, you know, what we're basically trying to do is we're trying to inform our brains and our bodies that the situation in which we find ourselves is okay, and that it can kind of stop sounding the alarms. And eventually, that should get us out of our anxious state, or at the very least, it should help us feel a little bit better. And then from there, maybe we can carry out some of the other steps. So,
0: And Brian, have you experimented with or tried box breathing what can sometimes be referred to as navy seals breathing and and how does that work for you relative to this step
1: yeah for sure so i I believe the box breathing is the four 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 pattern
0: yeah yeah you can you you can lengthen or 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 change some of them i i try to do very long on the um on the holds like i do about an eight to ten second hold but yeah four in hold for four four out hold for four is a perfect example of box breathing
1: for sure yeah i like my expertise or my the the you know the things that i focus on tend to be more of the the mental than the the physical sort of things i guess that's not something that i've necessarily focused on i i tend to just kind of like because i'm you know focusing on more of the you know how how i'm thinking and how that's making me feel and whatnot uh, i kind of just like subconsciously i'm just like okay I know that I need to remember to breathe. Uh, And then whatever version of that, that feels right to me, that's the one that I'm going to use. Box breathing is definitely the thing. The reason why, even though I don't use it that often, the thing that I like about box breathing is it's like so methodical that you, it's almost foolproof, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, because you have to count, right? So it's hard to think these intrusive, aggressive thoughts when you're like, one, one thousand, two, one thousand three. Oh, what was I thinking? Oh, wait, I stopped. Yeah, absolutely agreed. It's it's. Uh, I, I love both aspects of it. Physiologically, the studies similar to what you're talking about with the deep breaths. Physiologically, the studies show that it does it does do things within the body and within the nervous system. So there there's benefit there, but it's also the sheer fact that you're counting. It's a form of a. It's a form of a mantra, if you will.
1: Definitely, yeah, and a little bit of that distraction too, right? Some people say like kind of a cliche or whatever, but it's like if you can't measure it, you can't manage it, right? And so it's if I don't have a schedule or a a pattern or whatever it may be for my breathing, even if it's just a, a four 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 pattern, right? Then it's going to be very hard for me to say like, okay, I need to remember to breathe, like it's possible that without a, an actual plan, I may just start breathing willy nilly, whatever it is. Right. So I, the thing that I do love about the box breathing is it, it, it like almost in its name or in its association, you have the strategy is right there. And then that tells you what to do. And then that gets you, you know, again, like you said, it, it brings physiological benefits, but also mental benefits and you're, you're counting, uh, and then you're breathing. And so it, it is a, it's a very nice framework. I think that's what I would say.
0: Yeah. I love it. The, the, w- let's dive into step two. And step two is determining the true importance of what's making you anxious. And two of the ones that really jumped out at me that you put were, you know, making a list of some of the top issues. Um, and I love the concept of fast forwarding yourself a year and looking back and asking yourself how you would feel. Do you want to take our listeners through those?
1: Yeah, sure. So I guess I sometimes have to do some disclaimers on these things, right? I guess. So the disclaimer that I want to make is that what I talk about here, uh, it's, this isn't like, and it'll make, it'll make more sense in a minute. But what I talk about here is not to uh, downplay anything that anybody who is listening is going through, right? It's not to say, uh, Okay, in a year from now, this is like what you're going through is is going to be trivial or whatever it is, right? It's it's just a tactic that that might help. Um, I find that it helps for me sometimes, especially when we get in our heads, right? Because so the if I jump into the step now, right? Basically, the idea is um, just to rephrase it, or excuse me, to repeat it. Uh, determine the true importance of what's make, making you anxious, right? There is a there's a common thing that happens in our minds. Which is basically going back to the idea of a trigger, right? Something sets us off. So it could, it could be a lion. It could be something that our boss says to us. It could be a reminder, you know, it could be a bill that comes in the mail, something that sets off our fear inside of us. And when we take, when we move from that trigger to our minds, what can happen is, and not all the time, but what can happen is we can spin over that fear so much that we blow it up to something that is we feel is much worse than it actually is or like uh we kind of i don't know what the the exact right word is but like you know let's ju- let's just say we get a bill in the mail and it says like hey uh your credit card was late you know, your payment was late like you owe this much money or whatever so the actual fear right there is like oh geez, can i pay this bill we jump into our minds and we say uh, we start thinking, we're like, oh my God, I forgot to pay the bill. What is this going to do to my credit score? What is it? all these different things, right? And so maybe 10, 15 minutes later on the other side of a rumination session. Uh, and folks, I, I think that's the first time I've used that word, but I uh, usually just use rumination in exchange for like turning thoughts over in our mind in a negative fashion, right? On the other side of those 15 minutes, we may have thought, we may have gone over these thought patterns that have blown the original fear not, I don't want to say out of proportion, but we have we have uh, magnified it or magnified it or expanded it larger than it actually is, right? So what's going on in our minds may be, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to pay any of my bills. Oh my God, I'm going to be out on the street. I'm going to lose my house, yada, 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 right? And so when I say determine the true importance of what, what's making you anxious, part of that is to say, okay, let me ground myself back in reality and take a look at what I'm afraid of. If, and, and again, this is not going to work every time for everyone, but if we have blown our fear out to a larger proportion, then going back to the credit card bill and saying, this is what I'm afraid of right now, not necessarily all the things that are going on in my mind, that takes the fear down a little bit, right? Because that, again, that grounds us back in reality. The second part, which you alluded to, is basically, and it's, it's obviously related, but it's also, I think it sometimes works better um, in certain situations than others. So how I used it in the book was, you know, the framework was basically like, and it's it's funny because, you know, there's different themes that you can pull out of it or recurring themes or whatever it is, right? And so how I developed these steps was actually, um, I had been, you know, talking to this girl and she went on a long, long vacation. And based on some of the things that have happened in my life previously, where like I've had panic attacks on dates with women and how that has affected me and whatnot, I basically had two months uh, while this woman was away to think about how everything could go wrong, Right. And so I'm at work, I'm on a boring project. And when I didn't have anything to do at the office, it was like, I would return to the anxiety and I'd be like, I really want this to work out. But like, what if this happens or what if that happens or whatever? And so when you said, you know, zoom out a year and think about what the ramifi- ramifications could be, what I had what had gone on in my mind was like, I had taken a situation where it was like, I really like this girl and I hope that it works out. And I'm worried that it doesn't to going into my head and playing out all these stories, and convincing myself that if it didn't work out, like I would be devastated, right? And uh, going back to the things that you said, in the sense of like Zoom, uh, fast forward a year, right? What I what I said to myself in that moment was like, okay, look, in one year, or let's say when she comes back and it doesn't work out, or whatever it may be, if it doesn't work out, yeah, it's it's going to hurt, and it could hurt for a few months or something like that. But if I Zoom Forward one full year. If I zoom forward five full years, am I really still going to be thinking about this situation? Am I real, really still going to be, you know, devastated that it didn't work out or whatever? And again, this is not to say to folks like everything that you're experiencing, like all your difficulties, like are trivial in the long run or whatever it is. That's definitely not it. Uh, it's just a strategy of potentially reframing some of the things that are going on in your mind and being able to say to yourself, okay, maybe. Maybe I have taken this thing that I am afraid of and I have blown it a little bit out of proportion and I'm trying to get back to exactly what reality is and how that may play out in one year, five years or whatever, if that makes sense. And, and hopefully in reframing it and seeing it in a different light, then maybe uh, we can say to ourselves, okay, like again, this thing could still be scary, but maybe it's not five years scary. Maybe it's one month scary or something like that.
0: Yeah, I'll dive in and share something on this one, a little bit of a digression, because I think it's, even as you talk about it, what really jumps out at me is something that was absolutely life-changing for me, Brian, which was the learning cognitive behavioral therapy in a book I read probably when I was about 34. And up until then, I really lived a lot in my head. And to your concept, get out of your head. I was, you know, always telling myself stories. Oh, Brian said this, Ted said that Jane said this, and this is what they meant. And, you know, ascribing my patterns of thinking onto other people and, and the concept, uh, that you shared of making a list, right. Often one of the, one of the things that, was life-changing, was the concept of thought auditing. So I think something, I start to tell myself a story, and I say, whoa, pause monkey mind, let's write down that story, and then let's write five to 10 alternative logic-based stories on the other side of the page. And then let's look at both sides and say, which one's probably more likely? Did my wife tell me to load the dishwasher because she thinks I'm lazy, Or because she's tired and she cooked dinner and it would be the right, fair thing to do for me to clean. Right. So, um, totally agree. Not to trivialize how we're thinking, because sometimes those stories may be real. And, and at the same time, often, often we tell ourselves stories that aren't real. And I've, I've never, I've never, you know, I've talked about it with a few guests. I've never met someone whose monkey mind is a friendly, uh, cheery, pump-you-up type monkey mind. So, <laughs> um, And when I do, I'm, I'm really probably going to like spending time with that person. <laughs> so that brings us, and, and you talked a little bit about step three when you were talking about step two, which was evaluate the potential outcomes and reconnect to the ones you want. Because part of what you say there is that focusing on what you want is what will allow you to get it, which sounds like a very powerful self-motivation technique. Can you dive into that for us, Brian?
1: Yeah, sure. And it's funny because you alluded to it. Uh, I I think there's actually like a sentence in the book that says like steps two and three are like very closely related. Step two is more of the long-term looking at, kind of rationally looking at our fears. Step three is a little bit more in the moment, short-term, right? And so the analogy that I, well, I I don't know how many analogies I want to give from the book. I got to give people something to read, right? Um, but so, so I'll skip the analogy that's in the book. I'll use a different one, right? And so let's say we're going on a job interview. This is a topic that I talk about a lot. If we're going on a job interview, let's say it's one that it's with a company that we really wanna work for. It's our We could even say it's our dream job, right? Now to an anxious mind, when we think about that, the first thought is like, oh crap, right? It's not necessarily like, hey, this is amazing. I got, a, I got an interview with my dream company, right? It's more like, what could go wrong? And so in our minds, because let's say, uh, and I'm, I'm speaking for myself, but also for some listeners, right? It's like, because we are anxious people, we tend to see maybe some of the worst things, maybe some of um, the, the worst potential outcomes or whatever it is. And then as we jump into our heads and we engage in looping thinking and rumination and things of that nature, we come up with all these different stories and we come up with all these different ideas and we create all these feelings and these negative physiological responses in our bodies to the point where we are so fixated on threat evaluation and you know the lion that's in front of us that we forget that we are going to a job interview with our dream company for our dream job and guess what we could maybe even get that job and i know it's you know it's a little corny or something like that but the i guess the takeaway is that because we are anxious and we tend to look at things in a negative light we forget about those things that we want to happen right And so all of a sudden it's like, we're so darn anxious and we feel as though we're going to this situation where nothing good can happen. It's like, I'm going, I could have a panic attack. These people could laugh me out of the building, whatever it might be. This is going to be awful. I am dreading it. I am so nervous. I am so worried. And again, this doesn't work for everyone and it's not going to work all the time. But sometimes it's helpful to say, hey, maybe I won't get the job. Maybe I won't, but I actually could. Let me try to think about that, right? Like, let me just settle on that for a second and say, Hey, I got the job, right? It's again, cliche, simple, whatever. Cause it's like, yes, of course we want to focus on positive thoughts and we want to see ourselves, uh, with the outcomes that we desire and things of that nature. The reason why I think it's actually helpful is because our mind, again, you know, you were talking about the, the monkey mind and whatnot. Like so many of our minds are tinged toward negativity and, you know, Different topic I could I could go down, but I'll just kind of leave it at this: is you know we our brains have a negativity bias because uh, they want to see lions in front of them uh, because when they do see those lions, even if they're not actually lions, but they escape them, they survived, right? And being able to ensure our survival is what the fight or flight system is all about. And so I know I'm rambling rambling a little bit on this one, but uh, you know, kind of reversing that negativity bias in a specific situation and saying hey, yes, I, I might not get the job, or I may have a panic attack in the office, or, or this may happen, but I could get the job, and I'm going to try my best to focus on that. Or at the very least, I'm going to remember that I want the job, and I'm not going to think about this situation before I go into it.
0: And for the listeners, the actual analogy that Brian uses in the book on this one is phenomenal. Uh, Brian, facilitate a men's group and we meet once a week. And after I read the book, in the very next meeting, someone was engaging in that behavior. And I was able to use that analogy that night and say, hey, have you ever you know, watched this specific thing? Do, do you know what they try to avoid doing as they're going through this scenario? And you know why they do it. And that's exactly what you're doing right now. So it was very powerful. And uh, I was able to use it within 24 hours the so when we go to the next step, you, you've somewhat already tackled this one, and we've talked about a couple of the subsets of it. So some of the things you brought up in this step were the longer we focus on a thought, the more power it has over us, which, which we've both gone into a fair bit so far, and the fact that our mind can barely tell the difference between our fears and reality. And what this step is, is shifting our focus from the negative to the positive, which you were just talking about with the job interview example. Is there anything additional you want to share on, on this one, or, or do you want to jump to step five?
1: Yeah, let's go to step five. I th- you know, Just to put it in, in the actual, so to say, say it out loud, step four is to shift your focus to something positive. As you mentioned, Clint, we, we did cover this one a little bit already, so I, I think we can jump to five. But there's a lot of overlap in these steps, right, and a lot of the philosophy behind anxiety and dealing with it and mental health and whatnot. So we are going to cover some of these indirectly, but I think that's okay.
0: Yeah. And they one of the things I love is when, when you pair some of these things up with each other, their ability to help resolve the situations you're facing are very powerful and very beneficial. And, um, Your, your next one is one that I've really learned to love, which is recite a powerful mantra and, you know, Brian, can you take us through that? And as well, I love your, one of the personal ones you tend to use, breathe, focus, outcome. So take us through the importance of the mantra to you. And why do you like that one yourself personally so much? It's a great question.
1: That one, that's one that I kind of fell backward into, like in the sense that it just popped into my head or, you know, if I'm being totally honest. um, So (laughs) again, recurring themes here, there was a woman that I was interested in that I had seen a few times or whatever. And she actually like texted me and was like, Hey, I'm in your hometown. It was Christmas Eve. And she was like, why don't you come like, you know, say hello or whatever. And I'm like, holy crap. I get anxious about this stuff anyway. But like I'm about to go meet her whole family. And I don't, you know, like we're not obviously well, we weren't dating or anything at the time. And so you get that text message, you're like, well, I have to go, because like this is a good opportunity. But at the same time, like I'm scared, you know? And so well, as soon as I got the text message, I don't know how far in advance it was. Let's let's call it five hours or something like that. And you and you know, you immediately say, Well, I have five hours to go deep down the rabbit hole, right? Like, think all sorts of negative thoughts, feel really bad. And so this was, I don't know when this was, 2012, something like that. And I remember saying to myself, like, this is at the point where I had started to develop some different strategies for myself, not not nearly as many as I developed actually in 2015, which is a core part of the book that I talk about. But so it was 2012 and I'm, you know, I have the awareness now. I'm like, okay, this is anxiety. I had, you know, been diagnosed and been to doctors and come up with different things and experimented and realized some things that worked for me, others that didn't or whatever it was. So I have five hours in front of me and I'm thinking to myself, like, what can I do to keep myself distracted from the fact that like, I'm going to this girl's house and meeting her entire extended family. Right. And they're going to think that like, you know, oh, this is her boyfriend or something like that. Right. And I'm just like, I'm very, I'm very nervous of this, but like, I obviously have to go do this. So what am I going to say to myself? What am I going to do uh, to help myself like distract myself from the idea of like being afraid of of going and doing that right and so i was just like sitting down and i was like okay i got to remember to breathe i have to remember to breathe and then i need to remember to focus and what am i going to focus on i'm going to focus on kind of you know going back to some of the previous steps focus on this in- interaction going well and then from there i'm going to say remind myself of that specific manifestation of what going well means so maybe that's go have a nice conversation like uh, meet the whole family whatever it was it was like okay so i'm taking these three things and i'm saying remember to breathe remember to focus what am i focusing on i'm focusing focusing on a good outcome and the one that i want and then i just i don't know i just kind of put it together and i said like okay like breathe focus outcome uh, i also sometimes use breath focus outcome uh, depends on i don't know if they're one you know, one and the same but so i just kept repeating that to myself and I mean, I think the interesting thing about anxious situations, right, is like some of them do go poorly. Sometimes like there's a reason why we get afraid, right? Because sometimes we show up to a job interview and it doesn't go well. But I think like, I think one thing we can say is that there are very few anxious situations that kill us, Uh, you know, and there's only one that can, uh, because then we're dead, but (laughs) keep things less grim. So it's like you go through enough anxious situations where you say to yourself like, okay, like I, I think I can get through this thing, right? And so, in that specific situation, I was just, you know, I had been through some of them before, and I realized, like, okay, I have been on the other side of some of these scenarios. I'm going to get through this one as well. I'm going to repeat this mantra to myself. It made it made me feel good, you know, in advance of the situation itself. Uh, and then, when I was using it in the situation, the, the funny thing, right, is like you use these mantras before the situation, and then or or whatever you need to do to distract yourself, right? And then you get to the actual situation. And the next thing you know, like, even if you spent all day in your head or whatever it is, there are some times where you kind of like, like blackout almost, right? Like you're so in the moment that like the next thing, you know, the door is shutting behind you and you're like, I got that worried over, over that. And I, I didn't even like, it went by that. And I didn't think about it. You know what I mean? So again, like not to trivialize any experiences that anyone has or downplay anything uh, of that nature, but I guess just to remember, right? The fact that. We do get through a lot of the situations, well, probably all of the situations that we go through. And some of them are very difficult, but some of them we get through. And if we can try to remember to shift our focus to the things that we want and remember to think positive, again, I know that's pretty obvious or corny or whatever it is, but it does help. And tying back, you know, kind of closing out the idea of mantras, right? We talk a lot about distraction and the fact that sometimes there's a lion in front of us and sometimes our mind just thinks there's a lion in front of us. And in the, the latter case, what we often need to do is we need to say like, you're not a lion, so I'm going to go uh, do something else, distract myself, whatever. And so what a mantra does is it allows you to, it gives you something to focus on other than your incessant negative thoughts, right? So whatever situation it is or thing that you are worried about, uh, you give yourself, uh, actually, you know, one of, um, one of my colleagues actually says like, uh, a mantra is sort of like, uh, I don't know, like a rattle, uh, you know, like a baby rattle for for the monkey mind. Uh, so going back to that theme, but basically just, it's a, it's a way of saying like, hey, your mind is over here on the negativity. Here's this thing that you should repeat to yourself and that's going to distract you. And you're just going to say it to yourself again and again and again. And basically like kind of put a wall up that prevents those negative thoughts from coming in or makes it harder for them to get in. So, you know, we talked about breath focus outcome. And so In advance of a situation, I may say to myself, like I'm, I may be nervous, and I may just say, like, breath, focus, outcome, breath, focus, outcome, something like that, right? And it's you know everybody, everybody has their own mantra that works for them. Uh, There's no mantra that you need to use. It's kind of just there's no right or wrong mantra. It's just the one that feels good to you, that works for you, and helps you you know navigate some of those, well, uh, distract you from some of those negative thoughts. Uh, Another one that I like to use. This is one that Tony Robbins uses. Um, he says, if you get in your head, you're dead. And that one's a little more aggressive, right? So like when I use that one, um, I try to combine it with something a little bit more physical. So like I say that one to myself, and this is actually something that if, he, if anybody who's listening has been to his events, he tells you to like, quote unquote, make your move. So it's like making a physical embodiment of, you know, some sort of slogan that you're saying uh, that's supposed to like focus you and put you in a, in a peak state, right? So I may say to myself, like, you know, if you get in your head, you're dead, if you get in your head, you're dead. I may pump my fist, I may like hit my chest, something like that. The idea is to use the words, to use the physical motion, to maybe use the force, again, as a way of distracting you from the negativity in your mind.
0: That one is, I also had it written down in my notes. It was a beautiful one. And it's also very, very accurate. And for anyone out there who's done some, let's call it sports that involve As an example, skiing, skateboarding, longboarding, snowboarding, probably water skiing and wakeboarding. When you're in the flow and you're relying on your training and you're just in it, you almost never fall. And as soon as you start to think about your edge or think about your body position and you get in your head, you fall. So as soon as you're in your head... You're dead. The wipeout's coming. And So learning, oh, I'm not supposed to be in here. I found I used to, you know, have specific songs when I was a kid that I would just keep playing over and over when I was on the snowboard so that when I was going top speed, I couldn't get in my head because the song was just playing over and over. And I think it was embarrassingly, uh, welcome to Miami, Bienvenido, Ami, Ami. uh, I think that was a Will Smith song back in the day, but I uh, loved that one when I was on the powder that might be dating myself, Brian. The next one brings us back to the monkey mind. It sounded when I read this one a little bit like our friend, the inner critic. And what you said here was stop questioning yourself. What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, for sure. So I think kind of going back to an earlier part of the conversation where we said that Going to uh, the three tenets of anxiety, right? The first one is basically saying that uh, without uncertainty, there is no anxiety, or all anxiety is rooted in uncertainty. So um, you know, it's like somebody who is confident. The the definition of confident is that, and you know, there's I, I, there's so many nuances here that I could get into or whatever. It's like sometimes there's veneers of confidence where it's like somebody looks confident, but maybe they're not so much on the on the inside or whatever. But we'll we'll put those down for a minute. You know, let's let's just say somebody who is truly confident, right? Like Let's say, you know, I was watching the NBA finals last night, right? So somebody like Giannis, who is confident in his abilities, he's, you know, one of the best basketball players in the world, even though he may get a little bit nervous before he steps on the court or whatever, he knows that he has put in the training. He knows that he is a skilled player. He knows that he can quote unquote do it right. He can win the games, score the baskets, win the championship, whatever. He is not spending time thinking about, am I capable of putting the basket, uh, the ball through the basket? Am I capable of hitting the big shot or whatever it is? And so often it's like, when we create, when we ask questions of ourselves, when we doubt ourselves, which is, you know, another way of uh, coming, coming back to the actual step itself, stop questioning yourself. It's like, when you question, you create doubt. And when you have doubt, you have uncertainty. And then from there, it's not long before you have anxiety. So I don't know. It's just like, if you... It, it, it again. It's 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 just like a recurring theme. It's like if so. My you know going back to the idea of like I have if I had if I'm afraid to drive on the highway, but my friend is not. What what am I doing? Right. I am thinking about driving on the highway. I am questioning my ability to drive on the highway safely. My friend who is not afraid of that thing, he just gets in the car and does it. Right. And so it's like it, it is difficult to not go there and not question ourselves and not ask those questions and have those doubts. But, but when we don't ask them, when we either train ourselves, like, you know, as a basketball player, it's like, uh, if we put in the time in the gym, then naturally, we're going to say, well, I dedicated that time. So I'm not worried uh, that I don't have the skill. Or we can just push those questions aside, you know, a little bit easier said than done, but we can push them aside. And in doing that, we push away the uncertainty, we push away some of the anxiety. Again, so much of this is kind of distracting ourselves from uncertainty, doubt, questions fear whatever it is giving ourselves something else to focus on so uh, again yeah when we're when we're questioning our- ourselves when we're doubting ourselves we're, we're creating that anxiety inside of us
0: yeah so when I think of your state management in the state machine questioning ourselves if that then uncertainty if that then anxiety so we're basically taking ourselves from a simple state to questions two states later we're in anxiety. Makes absolute sense. Yeah. The So the next one, this one was really powerful for me. And it made me think of um, something else, which I'll, I'll share after you give a description to the listeners, was utilizing an empowering way to feel good. Can you tell us more about that?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, that one that one is pretty simple. Like, and I'm not, you know, I'm obviously, I'm going to dive into it, but it's its not any more complex than it sounds, right? It's, it's sort of like the idea that may, maybe like uh, our feelings are a ladder, right? In the sense that like when we are really happy, maybe we're at the top of the ladder. And when we are hopeless and depressed and anxious and all these sorts of things, maybe we're at the bottom of the ladder. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to, you know, in a way... Uh, you know, people people will say the downward spiral, right? And we we've, we've sort of touched upon that uh, very quickly in earlier parts of the conversation. We're almost trying to create like an upward spiral for ourselves. So if we find ourselves in a lower state, and again, uh, talking about state management, it's like, what we want to do is we want to have things at our disposal that can help us get from one state to another, meaning a negative or a depressed or an anxious state or a uh, one even in which we just don't feel as good, right? It might not ne- might not necessarily be uh, all the way down the ladder. We want to have at our disposal things that are going to take us from that state up a couple notches on the ladder, and then it's almost like in the same way that our looping thinking can turn into worse thoughts and worse feelings. Again, like taking this uh, taking the downward spiral and flipping it up, we want to create an upward spiral for ourselves. We want to get. To some semblance of positivity, and then hopefully we will create this—you know—flipped. Tor- well, I guess that would be an actual tornado, but we would flip the downward spiral upon itself, and we would by by feeling good, right? Like when we move ourselves in taking that first action, we then open ourselves up to maybe other opportunities that help us make uh, make us feel even better. Maybe different forms of thinking that make us again feel more positive. That sort of thing. So, I mean, to put this. Uh, To take it out of the abstract a little bit and make it a little bit more concrete, it would be, you know, something along the lines of like, if we feel anxious, if we feel depressed, our friends may call us and say like, hey, let's go out or whatever it is, right? And we may say like, well, we might not actually tell them, I don't know. But um, we may think to ourselves like, oh, um, I'm not in the right state to go out. Like I'm not excited about that or anything of that nature, right? And so we stay inside. We think the same thoughts. We engage in destructive thinking and all that sort of thing. And, you know, maybe we fall down a few pegs on the ladder. Um, if we instead say, like, okay, here's the state that I'm in. I know that the thing that I, you know, the two or three things that I've uh, decided for myself that are going to help me feel good right now, one of them is listening to like my, my favorite song of all time. Right. And so we listen to that song. It bumps us up a couple pegs on the ladder. We feel a little bit better. Our friend calls us and says, Hey, let's go out to dinner. And because we feel a little bit better, we say, you know what? I will go out to dinner. We go out to dinner. We have a nice conversation. We have fun. We come back feeling a little bit more hopeful, a little bit more joyous. And then that, again, those different actions lead us from one thing to another. And hopefully in time, we we climb up more pegs on that ladder and maybe even create, you know, flip that downward spiral upon itself um, and create uh, help help us create even more good feelings. So that's kind of the thought process behind that one. Uh, when it comes to like specific things that can make us feel good, it's, it's going to come down to everybody's personal tastes, right? But I guess the idea of like, you know, listening to a favorite song, going to the gym, going for a run, doing some yoga uh, doesn't all have to be physical by any means. Uh, it could be, you know, watching your favorite movie, Playing a video game, whatever it is, but just making the note of like, okay, these are the things that I want to go back to when I don't feel so good. I want to use those to help get me out of, um, you know, part of that state, uh, excuse me, uh, get out of that state uh, into a slightly more positive one. And again, part of that goes back to the state management. So,
0: and Brian, have you done any HRV training in the past?
1: I have not.
0: Okay. I'll just give a quick background for the listeners, and I think it's something that you may enjoy. So it's effectively uh, the way I describe it. It's almost quantified meditation. So there's a device you can get from the Heart Math Institute that helps you do it. And it has different states. We'll call it low coherence, coherence, high coherence. And the goal is to get into a state of high coherence. And when you're in a state of co- high coherence, you know, I've had people say, well, how do you know? That's the right state. When you're there, you can, you intuitively know, wow, this is the feeling I would like to have all the time. And the two ways that you really get to a state of high coherence doing them at the same time, one of them is the breathing. So very specific breathing patterns. And the second is this it's recalling a time in your life that is one of your happiest memories. You know, something that just lights up your heart when you think about it. And so doing the breathing while thinking of that memory, you go right from a a state, it has a green, a, a red, blue, green, red being low coherence, green being high. And you can put the piece on and you're starting in a red state. And simply by altering your breathing and thinking That beautiful thought that you love and, you know, our listeners won't see the video, but you can see on my face is I think the thought that's my favorite memory, I'm just lighting up and you just see it go red, blue, green, super quickly, you just, you know, you learn how to get out of that low zone into the high zone simply by changing your breathing pattern and thinking that happy thought. So the fact that, you know, you found that over time through the work you've done and through solving some of your own issues, super, super powerful. I love it. It's it's why uh, that step resonated with me very, very deeply. That's
1: cool. And for the listeners, HRV, is that
0: heartbeat variability? heart rate variability that's right so it's also apparently a way to tell whether we've been working out too hard and you know if our heart rate variability does certain things they they say hey you may you might need a rest day from your workout so some people are using it for that there's also some research to show that it actually has impact on our mental states and so the way our the way our heart beats ties to anxiety ties to depression
1: oh i, I could definitely uh, yeah i could definitely relate to that i uh, you know very funny well funny, but very quick side note i've uh, done you know, as a software developer, I've worked for a bunch of different clients over the years uh probably won't say the name just for confidentiality reasons or whatever but uh one of the clients I work for makes physical uh devices electronics and they and one of their products uh you their headphones and you can put them into your ears and they uh they can measure 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 h r v
0: and that absolutely makes sense because the device that I'm mentioning it clips onto your earlobe. And the reason they do it there is it's it's a little light that goes through and your earlobes are so thin that it's able to see the blood flow and measure it, right? It's just, a, all of this stuff is just so incredible. I, I love it. The, the next one, and, and we've talked a fair bit about this one throughout and ties to the mantra, ties to what we were talking about early on, step eight get back to the present moment. What does that mean to you, Brian?
1: Yeah, sure. So I I start a lot of these answers by jumping back to a previous part of the conversation, right? And so one of the things that we talked about was how anxiety is this future looking sensation, right? It's this like, okay, I am worried that something is going to go wrong tomorrow. And because of that, I need to prepare myself right now. I need to think about it or whatever it is, right? Then we also talked a lot about the fact that Distracting ourselves from our fears is a powerful strategy or a strategy that can help us feel better, um, you know, get out of our heads, whatever it is. And so, even though there are a lot of different ways that we can take this specific step, getting back to the present moment is basically reminding ourselves that the things that we're worried about are not here today. They are something off in the distance. It could be a minute, an hour from now, it could be a year from now, whatever that may be. Um, but, but kind of, Having that awareness to understand that, again, those fears are not here today. They're, they're in the future. And, you know, one of the funny things, if I'm, if I'm being candid, right, is the fact that, uh, there's, a, there's, there's a quote that I use in the book that is often, uh, attributed to Mark Twain, but I'm not a hundred percent sure if he said it or not. Uh, it's basically, he basically says, you know, I've, uh, I've had a lot of terrible things happen in my, or I've been through a lot of troubles, uh, some of which have actually happened, right? In the sense of like, I put myself through so much anguish for things that didn't even occur. And so the idea of like, get back to the present moment, right? We sometimes drive ourselves crazy over like thinking, you know, in in a sense, thinking that we know how specific things are going to go saying like, I'm going to this job interview and it is going to be terrible. And I'm going to be so anxious and I'm going to be so fearful. And then sometimes we get there and it's like, I was that fearful over this. Like this was, this actually went pretty well, you know? Um, so, again, I, we could take this one a million different ways, but the, the core concept is just having that awareness to come back to this present moment because, uh, you know, unless we are in front of a lion uh, or in a specific situation that is right now causing our, our fear to kick up, um, easier said than done, but we should probably drop that fear.
0: Yeah, and, and you've used the idea of the job interview a few times as an example, which, which somewhat brings us back to step nine, because what you've pointed out is often the job interview itself isn't that bad. It's and step nine, it's the worst part of the anxiety is the wait or the time leading up to the event, not the event itself. Do you want to expand on that? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, uh, I actually wrote a blog post. I, I forget if it was last year or the year before, but it was funny because I was the the story from which the blog post came was, was years ago, but I was talking to one of the HR people at my company. And she was like, it was actually right before I was about to go skydiving. And she said to me, she was like, you know what? One time I was in Switzerland, study abroad with my friends, and they all wanted to go skydiving. like I, Or she was like, I knew they wanted to go skydiving, but I told them that I would absolutely never go. And she said, one day they kidnapped me, you know, like in a, in a friendly way, right? It's like, these are her friends. And they put me on this bus, they're like, We're not gonna tell you where we're going. They brought me to the facility, put put the suit on me. Like she's like, at this point I knew what I was doing, but she's like, I realized I had ten minutes from the time that I stepped out of the bus and realized what I was doing till the point at which I was actually jumping out of the airplane. And so one of the things that we talked about or um Uh, you talked about being in the zone or being in flow, right? Like just getting out there and doing it. Um, This is a very, this is a tangent or a side note or whatever, but one of the slogans that I love so much uh, in in the real world is, is Nike's, which is just do it. Right. And again, sometimes easier said than done, but uh, the, the, what the lesson I got from, uh, you know, my HR person's uh, story was basically like, if we are able to do something without thinking about it, well, if we are able to be in a position to do something without thinking about it, we are much more likely to actually do it, right? Her the the conclusion that she made was if they told me that we were going skydiving in a week, that is one week of absolute hell that I have to think of, you know, that I have to put myself through thinking about this event, worrying that something's going to go catastrophically wrong. She's like the only reason I was able to go on that uh, i was able to jump out of that plane was because i hadn't thought about it and so you know this this step step nine which is to remind yourself the worst part of anxiety is the waiting uh, i mean there's kind of two parts one is the concept that with too much lead time we can fall way down inside of our heads inside the anxiety rabbit hole and create some horrible horrible feelings that we might not even actually experience when we get to uh, the the event that's making us anxious um, and then the other one is kind of just an in-the-moment sort of thing of like uh, having uh, – it's it's giving ourselves the permission to have the awareness that like even if we feel bad right now, it's like being able to say to ourselves like that thing that is going that is on the horizon is not – like I, I'm reminding myself that it's not actually going to be that bad. And so if I actually believe that it's not that bad, I'm giving myself permission to not be as worried right now. And the the tough thing is, right, like, because we sometimes, you know, going back to the Mark Twain quote, it's like, you know, I've been through so many uh, terrible things and some of them actually happened or whatever it is, right? Sometimes we get so far inside of our heads before these events that we're like, we think to ourselves like rationally, right? Well, I'm not even there yet and I feel horrendous. So by virtue of whatever, you know, reasonable logic or whatever, it's only going to get much worse from here because I actually have to go and do that thing. When we've been through some scenarios in which, uh, again, going back to the job interview, when we come out on the other side and we say like, "Hey, that wasn't so bad," we give ourselves evidence to, you know, not be uh, to kind of strike that belief from our minds to say, "I can be nervous ahead of something, and it can also not be that bad when I get there." And then when we come back to that and we we present that evidence in front of us and we say, "Hey, like I felt." I have felt terrible in the past leading up to these events and it hasn't necessarily always gone that poorly. I'm giving myself permission to say, it's okay to not necessarily be as fearful as I am right now. It's it's okay to put the thoughts down, to not worry about it so much, things of that nature. So it's, you know, there's a, a few different things going on there, but you know, the, the core take takeaway is um, if you can, right? Like if you're very anxious, maybe Try not to plan things out so far in the future. Or if that is inevitable or you know, unavoidable, then I guess, you know, leverage some of the other steps. Try to remind yourself that, you know, thinking about your fears is only going to make them worse and that it's very well possible that you could get to that event and it might not go so bad.
0: Which ties to step step 10, which, which you've described a little there. And remember, this too shall pass. So you might have the fear. Once you, once you do it, it's gone right Is that what you're meaning by that statement, or is there is there something else as well that you're meaning by that Brian there's
1: with with all the steps, I think there are multiple interpretations, right with With this one, I think what I was really getting at was the fact that we can feel so terrible in the moment, you know, leading up to an event or in the middle of an event or things of that nature. We can feel so bad that we feel as though anxiety will always be with us that this event that we're going through or about to go through is going to destroy us, things of that nature, right? When we come back to ourselves and we say, look, I've been through similar anxiety-provoking events in the past. I've come on the other side of those events okay. We can have that knowledge and awareness to say to ourselves, the thing that I'm going through right now, and again, this is not to downplay anyone's situation or what they're going through. we, uh, We give ourselves permission to say, I'm going to get through this one too. This is not going to be so bad in the long run. The feelings that I'm feeling right now—they're going to dissipate. They're going to go away. And it, it, sometimes it's kind of like the opposite. Uh, going back to it's step six, kind of the opposite of questioning ourselves. Right? We're reassuring ourselves that things are going to go nicely. Things are going to go a little bit better than expected. And so, rather than creating more uncertainty and more anxiety in our bodies, we're creating a little bit more. more we're creating a little more certainty. Which allows us to say to ourselves, like, it's okay. Like, you know, I may feel bad right now and that's okay. And I may feel bad tomorrow and that's okay, but eventually this is gonna pass. And and, you know, I can't like it depends on the specific situation and, and when things are happening and whatnot. But again, just the idea of giving ourselves that reassurance.
0: Thank you, Brian. The other thing you talk about is because most of the steps we've talked about up till now are how to get out of the anxious state. You also share some ideas on how to avoid getting into the anxious state. And some of the ones that I wrote down were looking for the source, making the jump, healthy distractions, and what's really driving you. Can you share some of those with our listeners, Brian, and how they can avoid getting to that anxious state?
1: Yeah, sure. So a little more background on this one too, right? Is like so we talked a lot about the 10 steps and we went in depth in all, all of those. Got to give uh, listeners a little something uh, to want uh, incentive to pick the book up and, and find out some more information, right? So the, the 10 steps are basically what make up the first half of the book and the idea, like I called the two parts of the book, uh, zooming in and then zooming out. So like zooming in, like looking at an acutely anxious situation and how we get out of it. So that's, you know, using the 10 steps. And then zooming out is kind of, it's the second half of the book and it's kind of talking about like, you know, how do we generate, how do we create lives or cultivate lives that have less anxiety in them overall? And so as, as you alluded to, right, it's like, how do we avoid getting into those situations in the first place? I'm trying to think of one, you know, on, on a lot of podcasts, I talk about meditation. I, I'd like to try to uh, pick up, you know, talk about a different one just to, if, if folks are jumping around from, uh, from different appearances of mine. Uh, maybe talk about some of the other ones, but so, you know, we talked a lot about uh, distraction on this podcast. And so one yeah. of the things, so w- the the chapter that I, that I wrote in the second half of the book called healthy distraction is like, the idea behind it is if we are bored and if we have nothing to distract our minds from our worries, then it's kind of like that analogy that I used very quickly of like, have, you know, we have, we have a wall that we've built that protects our negative thoughts from coming in. If we are bored and we are not driven to do anything or we, we don't have, you know, we uh, unfulfilled or we just don't have a full schedule or things that are engaging us, uh, things of that nature, then those walls are coming down, right? And the negative thoughts are going to come in. So it's like the idea behind healthy distraction is, I mean, there's there's two parts. One that we've talked about a lot already, and that's like distracting yourself when you're anxious. The other one is distracting yourself, like building a life of distraction So that way, the the negative and anxious thoughts don't have a chance to come in in the first place. And so, you know, the quick and high level thing that I'm talking about here is basically like building a life that's full of meaningful and engaging goals that allow you to have something to focus on that then distract you or keep you from, you know, having your mind wander off to the negativity, wander off to some of those anxious thoughts, right? So it's like, if you are fully engaged and fully immersed in a goal of saying like, hey, I'm going to launch a company next uh, in the next six months, right? And it's like, okay, the things that I know I need to do are I need to create a website and I need to uh, have a logo designed and I need to maybe, you know, let's just say it's a blog or something, right? I need to crank out 10 blog posts and then I get to start working on SEO and marketing and things of that nature. When you put all those things in front of yourself and you say like, the reason I'm creating this brand, the reason I'm creating this website is because I wanna help people or because I wanna uh, ensure my fin- uh, the financial freedom of my family or something like that, right? You've identified a goal for yourself that in the same sense that like a lion in front of you can take your attention and say like, hey, I'm here and you need to do something about it. Uh, we can shift that and, and that, that powerful and, and empowering goal can do the same thing in a positive fashion, right? So it's it can say, hey, the blinders are on, you want financial freedom for your family, do these different things because you think, you know, the the thought process is that if you launch this company and it's it is successful, then that's what you'll you'll achieve, right? And so the idea is you want some guiding force out in front of you to say like that's what you're after and you want to keep your eye locked on it, uh, you know, pretty much as long and as hard as you can and um allow that to drive some of your actions and your behaviors and keep you focused and uh, away from uh I don't want to use the uh, the analogy of uh, from chapter three that we without we, uh, excuse me, step three that we said uh, listeners could pick the book up for. But, you know, keep you from thinking the thoughts that you don't want to think.
0: Yeah, yeah. Healthy distractions, getting in the gym for a workout, things that are going to occupy your mind in a healthy way. I love it, Brian. And we'll save some of the second half for the listeners to be the readers. The... Is there anything that we missed that you really want to get across?
1: I would just say like kind of in closing, right? To remember that, you know, whatever it is that you struggle with, like somebody who's listening, anxiety, depression, OCD, some, some mental health disorder, right? It's like, remember to have compassion for yourself and remember that what you're going through or what you've been through or something that you like, any one of these things that you deal with, they are difficult, right? And there are people out there that have, been through the same things that you've been through and that, you know, maybe you could connect with and uh, find, you know, I don't know, some common compassion or so, uh, some connection with those folks. And so it's, I guess the the overall message is just to remember that, like, you may be alone and, and struggling or suffering or things of that nature, but there are folks out there that are going through the same things. And just to remember that, like, there, there are reasons to be helpful. There are strategies out there that can help you. You know, you're not alone. It is difficult, but you know, never forget that um you can keep pushing forward and keep making progress. And you know, if if anybody wants to reach out to me and has any questions or you know, even wants to bounce an idea off me or you know, something that they're going through, then I would definitely say uh, I I would welcome anyone to reach out to me. I always want to try to help people as best I can. So um I don't know, just just remember that it gets better, even even if it's really difficult right now.
0: Yeah, thanks, Brian. And the other few things that I'd love to emphasize anytime we talk about mental health, um, we've all gone through an incredibly interesting 18 to 24 months with COVID. Isolation tends to amplify mental health challenges. So if you had slight anxiety coming in or slight depression coming into this, uh, chances are it was exacerbated. And, you know, you're not alone there are a lot of us that that's happened to and if you try some of the suggestions if you try some of the ideas and they're not working for you and you know it's an issue please please do reach out to mental health professionals and and get the the help you you need Brian, I thought you had a very good disclaimer at the start of the book, and I, uh, I I meant to share that at the beginning, and I didn't. But please, please do get the help you need if you're recognizing problems. And Brian, you mentioned they can reach out to you. So how can they find you? What's the best way for our listeners to get hold of you and find your work?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think the best way best way right now would probably be I'm trying to grow the Instagram following a little bit, and you know, obviously there's some selfish reasons there, but also I just want to be able to- help more people, right? And get the content to more folks. So the the Instagram account that I use uh for the author stuff is Get Out of Your Head Books. Hope trying to secure a better name than that, but I gotta wait for my trademark uh registration to finish before I can uh secure something else. So feel free to shoot me a DM on that. I, I do run the account right now. So you know if you reach out, you'll get me. And like I said, feel free to contact me, ask me about certain things. You know I've I've had stories both on the negative and the positive side from readers and I mean it's it's all obviously you, you want to hear more about like folks using the strategies and and making strides and whatnot but everybody is on their own mental health journey right and maybe maybe somebody who's listening is on the first step and maybe they haven't necessarily made any progress yet that is absolutely okay right and so I guess in whatever way that we can whether it's through this podcast, whether it's through, You know, a DM on Instagram or the book or something like that. You know, we're all just here to try to help listeners and help folks make some progress. And just, it's hard to put into words, right? But just trying to help folks overcome some of these really difficult challenges. And again, uh, provide some help and some hope along the way.
0: Yeah. And I think, Brian, the conversation we just had, if they listen to that, there's some great little tips that they can pick up that will help them. If they have a read through the book, they will also be in very good shape. A lot of what you write in here, I mentioned facilitating the men's group. And even last night when one of the young men was sharing, one of the things that I talked to him about was, you know, you're in your head a lot. You're telling yourself a lot of stories. I don't know how real they are. You know, there's some work you could do to get out of your head. And so the work you talk about, the the way you approach it, it's very valuable. And I think a lot of people who have been living in their head can really benefit by what you write. So thank you for writing it. And thank you for joining me on the show today. It was a pleasure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was a a pleasure, Clint. This one was a marathon. I mean that in a good way. So I think we'll leave folks with a lot of great content. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us on The Pursuit of Learning. Make sure to hit the subscribe button and head over to our website, thepursuitoflearning.com, where you will find our show notes, transcripts, and more. If you like what you see, sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, your host in learning, Clint Murphy.